Section 16 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 1. The first evening after the marriage night, Saxon met Billy at the door as he came up the front steps. After their embrace, and as they crossed the parlor, hand in hand toward the kitchen, he filled his lungs through his nostrils with audible satisfaction. My, but this house smells good, Saxon. It ain't the coffee. I can smell that, too. It's the whole house. It smells, well, it just smells good to me, that's all. He washed and dried himself at the sink, while she heated the frying pan on the front hole of the stove, with the lid off. As he wiped his hands, he watched her keenly, and cried out with approbation as she dropped the steak in the frying pan. Where'd you learn to cook steak on a dry, hot pan? It's the only way, but darn few women seem to know about it. As she took the cover off a second frying pan, and stirred the savory contents with a kitchen knife, he came behind her, passed his arms under her armpits, with down-drooping hands upon her breasts, and bent his head over her shoulder, till cheek touched cheek. Mmm, fried potatoes with onions, like Mother used to make. Me for them. Don't they smell good, though? Mmm. The pressure of his hands relaxed, and his cheek slid carelessly past hers, as he started to release her. Then his hands closed down again. She felt his lips on her hair and heard his advertised inhalation of delight. Mmm, don't you smell good yourself? Though I never understood what they meant when they said a girl was sweet. I know now, and you're the sweetest I ever knew. His joy was boundless. When he returned from combing his hair in the bedroom, and sat down at the small table opposite her, he paused with knife and fork in hand. Say, being married is a whole lot more than it's cracked up to be by most married folks. Honest to God, Saxon, we can show em a few. We can give em cards and spades and little casino and win out on big casino and the aces. I've got but one kick coming. The instant apprehension in her eyes provoked a chuckle from him. And that is, that we didn't get married quick enough. Just think, I've lost a whole week of this. Her eyes shone with gratitude and happiness, and in her heart she solemnly pledged herself that never in all their married life would it be otherwise. Supper finished, she cleared the table and began washing the dishes at the sink. When he evinced the intention of wiping them, she caught him by the lapels of the coat and backed him into a chair. You sit right there, if you know what's good for you. Now be good and mind what I say. Also, you will smoke a cigarette. No, you're not going to watch me. There's the morning paper beside you, and if you don't hurry to read it, I'll be through these dishes before you've started. As he smoked and read, she continually glanced across at him from her work. One thing more, she thought, slippers, and then the picture of comfort and content would be complete. Several minutes later, Billy put the paper aside with a sigh. It's no use, he complained, I can't read. What's the matter, she teased, eyes weak? Nope, they're sore, 
and there's only one thing to do I'm any good, and that's looking at you. All right, then, baby Billy, I'll be through in a jiffy. When she had washed the dish towel and scaled out the sink, she took off her kitchen apron, came to him, and kissed first one eye and then the other. How are they now, cured? They feel somewhat better already. She repeated the treatment. And now? Still better. And now? Almost well. After he had adjudged them well, he ouched and informed her that there was still some hurt in the right eye. In the course of treating it, she cried out as in pain. Billy was all alarm. What is it? What hurt you? My eyes, they're hurting like sixty. And Billy became physician for a while, and she the patient. When the cure was accomplished, she led him into the parlor where, by the open window, they succeeded in occupying the same Morris chair. It was the most expensive comfort in the house. It had cost seven dollars and a half, and though it was grander than anything she had dreamed of possessing, the extravagance of it had worried her in a half-guilty way all day. The salt chill of the air that is the blessing of all the bay cities after the sun goes down crept in about them. They heard the switch engine puffing in the railroad yards and the rumbling thunder of the Seventh Street local slowing down in its run from the mole to stop at West Oakland Station. From the street came the noise of children playing in the summer night and from the steps of the house next door, low voices of gossiping housewives. Can you beat it, Billy murmured. When I think of that six-dollar furnished room of mine, it makes me sick to think what I was missing all the time. But there's one satisfaction. If I'd changed it sooner, I wouldn't have had you. You see, I didn't know you existed only until a couple of weeks ago. His hand crept along her bare forearm and up and partly under the elbow sleeve. Your skin's so cool, he said. It ain't cool, it's cool. It feels good to the hand. Pretty soon you'll be calling me your cold storage baby, she laughed. And your voice is cool, he went on. It gives me the feeling, just as your hand does when you rest it on my forehead. It's funny, I can't explain it, but your voice just goes all through me. Cool and fine. It's like a wind of coolness, just right. It's the first of the sea breeze setting in the afternoon after a scorching hot morning. And sometimes, when you talk low, it sounds round and sweet, like the cello in the MacDonald Theater Orchestra. And it never goes high up or sharp or squeaky or scratchy, like some women's voices, when they're mad or fresh or excited till they remind me of a bum phonograph record. Why, your voice, it just goes through me till I'm all trembling, like with the everlasting cool of it. It's, it's straight delicious. I guess angels in heaven, if there is any, must have voices like that. After a few minutes in which so inexpressible was her happiness that she could only pass her hand through his hair and cling to him, he broke out again. I'll tell you what you remind me of. Did you ever see a thoroughbred mare, all shining in the sun, with hair like satin and skin so thin and tender, 
that the least touch of the whip leaves a mark, all fine nerves, and delicate and sensitive, that'll kill the toughest bronco when it comes to endurance, and that can strain a tendon in a flash, or catch death of cold without a blanket for a night. And I want to tell you, there ain't many beautifuler sights in this world. And they're that fine-strung and sensitive and delicate. You gotta handle em right side up, glass with care. Well, that's what you remind me of, and I'm going to make it my job to see that you get handled and gentled in the same way. You're as different from other women as that kind of mare is from scrub workhorse mares. You're a thoroughbred. You're clean-cut and spirited, and your lines... Say, do you know you've got some figure? Well, you have. Talk about Annette Kellerman. You can give her cards and spades. She's Australian, and you're American. Only your figure ain't. You're different. You're nifty. I don't know how to explain it. Other women ain't built like you. You belong in some other country. You're Frenchy, that's what. You're built like a French woman, and more than that, the way you walk, move, stand up or sit down, or don't do anything. And he, who had never been out of California, or for that matter, had never slept a night away from his birth town of Oakland, was right in his judgment. She was a flower of the Anglo-Saxon stock, a rarity in the exceptional smallness and fineness of hand and foot and bone and grace of flesh and carriage, some throwback across the face of time to the foreign Norman French that had intermingled with the sturdy Saxon breed. And in the way you carry your clothes, they belong to you. They seem just as much part of you as the cool of your voice and skin. They're always all right and couldn't be better. And you know, a fellow kind of likes to be seen tagging around with a woman like you that wears her clothes like a dream. And here's the other fellow say, Who's Billy's new skirt? She's a peach, ain't she? Wouldn't I like to win her, though? And all that sort of talk. And Saxon, her cheek pressed to his, knew that she was paid in full for all her midnight sewing and the torturing hours of drowsy stitching when her head nodded with the weariness of the day's toil, while she recreated for herself filched ideas from the dainty garments that had steamed under her passing iron. Say, Saxon, I got a new name for you. You're my tonic kid. That's what you are, the tonic kid. And you'll never get tired of me, she queried. Tired? Why, we were made for each other. Isn't it wonderful, our meeting, Billy? We might have never met. It was just by accident that we did. We was born lucky, he proclaimed. That's a cinch. Maybe it was more than luck, she ventured. Sure, it just had to be. It was fate. Nothing could have kept us apart. They sat on in a silence that was quick with unuttered love, till she felt him slowly draw her more closely, and his lips came near to her ear as they whispered, What do you say we go to bed? Many evenings they spent like this, varied with an occasional dance, with trips to the Orifum and to Bell's Theater, or to the moving picture shows, or to the Friday night band concerts in City Hall Park. Often, on Sunday, 
She prepared a lunch, and he drove her out into the hills behind Prince and King, whom Billy's employer was still glad to have him exercise. Each morning Saxon was called by the alarm clock. The first morning he had insisted upon getting up with her and building the fire in the kitchen stove. She gave in the first morning, but after that she laid the fire in the evening, so that all that was required was the touching of a match to it, and in bed she compelled him to remain for at least a little doze ere she called him for breakfast. For the first several weeks she prepared his lunch for him, then for a week he came down to dinner. After that he was compelled to take his lunch with him. It depended on how far distant the teaming was done. "'You're not starting right with a man,' Mary cautioned. "'You wait on him hand and foot. You'll spoil him if you don't watch out. It's him that ought to be waiting on you.' "'He's the breadwinner,' Saxon replied. "'He works harder than I, and I've got more time than I know what to do with. Time to burn. Besides, I want to wait on him because I love to, and because, well, anyway, I want to.' End of section 16